This is Brain Matters, the podcast where we explore the brain with the scientists who study it. Here's today's host, Anthony Lacanina. Hey everyone, this is Anthony. Before we begin today's episode, I just want to say thank you for listening and for supporting our show. If you want to get any more information about the science or the scientists that are on our show, you can go to our website, www.brainpodcast.com. If you like the show, we would really like to hear what you think about it. So please go to our iTunes page and tell us what you think. Leave us a review. Give us a rating. If you leave us a review or a rating, please let us know by taking a screen cap and sending it to our email, brainmatters at brainpodcast.com, or hit us up on Facebook or Twitter. For you sharing the love, we will share the love back to you. We'll send you a personalized thank you message. So please do that. Uh, we really like to hear what you think. All right, let's get to today's episode. Hey everyone, you're listening to Brain Matters. I'm Anthony Lacanina. Hey, and I'm Matt Davis. Hey, Matt. Oh, we're doing a we're doing a duo intro again. Another dual intro because the last one was a raging success. I I think it was. Yeah, I, I had a fun time doing that with you. Yeah. So this might be. We don't know. This might be a common thing. This might be the new format. This might be. It might not. We'll see. So. So what uh, what are we doing here today, man? Like, oh. uh, I, I assume you had a conversation with somebody. Yes, like we usually do. I had a guest. His name was Dr. Massimo Sconziani, and he is a professor at the University of California, San Diego, and a member of the Howard Hughes Medical Institute. And Dr. Sconziani, he does a kind of level of neuroscience research that we like to call systems neuroscience. Okay. So it's not, it's not cellular, and we're not just looking at like what one cell does. It's not behavioral. We're not looking at what a whole organism or an animal does. Somewhere in between, I'm imagining. That's exactly right. It's somewhere in between the the micro and the macro scale of neuroscience. Some of us like to call them neuronal circuits, kind of like a circuit board of a, of a computer would be arranged. So these are your small kind of wirings of neurons in the brain. And the question that the systems neuroscientist is trying to ask is how do these circuits, how do they form? When they are formed, what kind of computations do they perform? And then the biggest question of all really is that if we can understand how these small things, these small circuits are arranged, what does that tell us about how the brain as a whole does complicated tasks like behaviors? Great. I mean, uh, I I assume it's not going to be so easy that we just have one type of circuit component in the brain. The brain is vastly complicated system. There must be I'm imagining hundreds of different types of uh, neurons, maybe. There are actually 84. 84? Oh, that that's is, a I very just, precise number. That is the actual number. <laughs> Turns out, we don't even know. We, we're, we're not quite sure yet. There's a lot of different types of neurons, though. Yeah, but what we can say, in fact, if you listen to 
previous episodes. Did you did you listen to previous episodes? I have never listened to an episode of this podcast in my life. Okay. If you did, and I, I really think you should, we talked a couple weeks ago to a guy named Ben Strobridge. Kind of does he does a also systems level and um, in that interview, I think he said it really well. If we can understand, you know, how these small circuits work, there's probably only a certain number of these kinds of things that probably exist in the brain and they repeat a lot of times. So yeah, by by understanding how a tiny chunk of the brain works, it actually does inform us a lot about how other parts of the brain work. Okay, so we work out uh, specific circuits, say in the auditory system or something. Or the motor system, and then maybe those the way those neurons are connected will be repeated across the brain, say in the visual system, wherever you want to look. These exactly re- right, repeating yeah. motifs. Um, That's so a good word, re- repeating motifs. So the, the in terms of the 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 type of circuit components, uh, what are the there's some major classes I'd imagine that we categorize these. Yeah. So some kind of some interesting ways in which these circuits arrange themselves, there's lots of ways you can imagine. You could have a bunch of neurons in a row that would just, one would excite the next one, and then the next one would excite the next one, and just like a bunch of dominoes falling down, you would have a piece of information being transferred down a pathway. That would be almost the simplest one you could imagine. But the brain is more complicated than that, and there are lots of different uh combinations of ways in which information can sort of converge or diverge. And um, the one that Dr. Scanziani works a little bit on and has, has, has made some major contributions to is this type of circuit and this type of information transfers called feed-forward inhibition. Inhibition? Okay, yeah. Let me slow down for a bit. Well, what are we talking about here? I uh, mean, I get the idea that we have cells that are excitatory and they send information in a positive way, an excitatory way. So what's up with these inhibitory cells? Okay, these inhibitory cells, they're all throughout your nervous system. And what they do, they're kind of like the, they quiet the system down in precise ways. So you don't want everything to be excited all the time. Sometimes you want particular things to not work. For example, if you wanted to pay attention to one part of the visual of, of, uh, of something that you're looking at, you kind of want to ignore other parts, right? Uh, and so the brain actually has ways to inhi- what we call inhibit. And they are these inhibitory cells that prevent the other neurons from firing if they release their signal onto neurons. Okay, so these inhibitory cells and these excitatory cells, they're all mixed up in this big old vast area of the brain, you know, specific region. Um, what kind of motifs circuit motifs may we find in the interplay uh, or the connections of these inhibitory and excitatory cells? So I'll give you an example of a, 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 this, a very simple example of how one of these motifs might be set up. And this is an example of what we what uh, Dr. Scanziani has done some research on, this feed-forward inhibition. An example that we're all familiar with is the knee-jerk reflex. So this is when you've gone to the doctor and you, the doctor sits you down at the table and you stick your knee off and then he takes his little rubber hammer and then he hits you on the knee. And without any thought whatsoever, your knee just reflexes and jerks and, uh, you know, moves moves upward. I'm hitting my knee it. right now. You can, it's, it's not really working very well. <laughs> you Then you should go to a doctor and check out your nervous system because that's – why do they do that? Do you know why they do that? To scare you. It's just to scare you, exactly. To hurt you. Just to – show that they know more than you and they're assert dominance <laughs> they do that to check to see 
are you is your neurons firing normally right okay so it's a it's a check of the nervous system that's a that's what it's, it's a diagnostic of it's the nervous system. good 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 way of saying it yes so so what happens how does this circuit work so when that hammer hits your hits your knee there are sensory neurons in your knee they pick up on the basically the deflection of the skin what the uh, reflex does is there's a sensory neuron in there and it basically sends a signal to your spinal cord and in your spinal cord what it does is it does two things it basically that that neuron diverges and so you can imagine almost like a fork in a road and what down one of those roads what it does is it excites another motor neuron and that motor neuron basically causes your muscle your quadricep or the big you know your big muscle up in your leg to contract and so you're going to have contraction of that muscle but at the exact same time what you don't want to have happen is the opposite muscle contract at the same time what you want to do is relax the other muscle and make sure it doesn't fire in that pathway the other fork inhibits it actually talks to in one of these inhibitory cells that we were talking about before and what that inhibitory cell does is prevent the other motor neuron from firing and so what this allows you to do is it causes contraction of one muscle and inhibition of the other one and what that does is makes coordinated muscle movements right um it helps the system do complicated tasks with a single input that's what makes it i think it's so beautiful is that one input pattern actually causes two different outputs that are coordinated and help the helps the uh actual function work that sounds pretty freaking awesome no thank you body thank you this is uh this is i think a tagline for the show thank you bodies thank you bodies thank you brains thank you brains so what about all right so this must have some manifestation in the brain it does we're, we're talking about the muscles here and I'm sure this happens all over the brain all the time. It seems to be important for lots of kinds of pieces of information. So visual information. I talked about attention. We think that attention works through these kinds of mechanisms. Um, and what Dr. Scanziani has worked on is areas of the brain, such as the hippocampus, which is the area of the brain that is very important for forming uh, memories, converting short-term to long-term memories. And he also works on the area of the brain, the cortex, which is the big wrinkly lumpy mass on the outside of your brain that does lots of different things uh dr scanziani focuses a lot of his uh, efforts in the visual system the visual cortex which is at the back of your brain right if you were to put your hand in the back of your head that's about where you'd find it so the the information travels from the front of my head the eyes all the way through my brain to the very back that's right that's how it works great yeah and once it gets there um there's some interesting inhibition and excitation type balances that happen and really understanding how excitation and inhibition the balance that happens between those two seems to be a really fundamental part of how a lot of information flows in the brain how we make computations about movement how we make computations about where objects are in in our visual space about how what to attend to things like that and even like to to build it up even further how maybe information would would be, allow you to make a memory uh that area of the brain the hippocampus needs very precise timing of excitation and inhibition and so this seems to be really a fundamental property of information flow in our brain so understanding it is very crucial for understanding all forms of uh brain activity 
Well, all right, man. I'm I'm enjoying this conversation, but I'd really love to listen to that interview now. Yeah, I, I think you're I think you're really gonna enjoy this interview. Uh, let's let's get right to it. All right, listeners, perk up those cochlea. That's oh, I was gonna say it this time. <laughs> you were? No, not really. Oh. <laughs> all right, let's do it. Would you be able to tell us about? the large questions or sort of the scope of your lab, what you're trying to sort of answer right now? Yes. So my name is Massimo Scanziani. I'm a professor in the Department of Biology at UCSD and investigator at the Howard Hughes uh, Medical Institute. My lab uh, works on uh, the cortex, uh, the cerebellar cortex of mammals, and uh, we're interested in the computations performed uh, by circuits on neurons, in particular how those circuits or neurons process sensor information entering the cerebral cortex. Could you tell us what the cerebral cortex, what that is comprised of? There are different sort of areas uh, that have been identified um, and which ones you like the best, yes, which ones so you like to look at. The cerebral cortex is a vast uh, region of the brain that is not only responsible for sensory processing, but also for very important uh, cognitive properties and uh, motor properties. We are uh, interested in uh, the sensory part. Uh, and the one that deals uh, with processing information from our environment. And in fact, in particular, we're interested in that part, in that sensory part of the cortex that deals, deals with, uh, with the visual world, uh, with uh, all uh, the sensory input, essentially, that comes from our eyes. Okay, so there's a component of this cortex that processes or at least receives a lot of this information. What do we know about what it might be doing? Like you said, you're interested in these the computations that it's yes. doing. What is the current state of affairs on what we yes. think is so going on? How, what does it mean? What is a computation? So the visual world is very rich and contains information that might be of very high relevance for the organism, but other information that is not necessarily relevant. And so... Uh, something uh, very, very important that the cortex uh, does uh, constantly and continuously is trying to filter out the information that is relevant for the organism at that particular moment in time, at least, from the information that is not relevant. And so for this, it needs to uh, combine uh, uh, information in space, combine information in time, combine color, edges, contrast, if that animal, particular animal is able to detect uh, uh, colors, for example, this is not necessarily the case for mice, which is my model organism. But anyhow, being able to extract uh, relevant information from uh, an incredibly uh, rich uh, visual environment and take that information which is uh, relevant for your survival, depending on what you need at that particular moment in time, is what uh, is one of the things that uh, visual cortex does. So it's very important in uh, filtering out relevant from non-relevant information. And so how did we realize that this area would be part of the brain that would be doing this process? The identification of uh, cortical areas has a long history. It's uh, more than 100 years old. And uh, it starts with lesions, uh, lesions that were experimentally performed on animals or lesion that happened uh, um, by accident to humans. In fact, a very rich uh, data set uh, came in World War I uh, because uh, so many humans were sadly hit by bullets, bullets in, in their head, and those bullets created a relatively specific lesion to various parts uh, of the brain, including the cortex, 
And so people notice that consistent with uh, experiment done on animal done on animal before, if part of the occipital parts parts of the occipital cortex, which is the one in the back of your head, were lesioned by a bullet, then the human would turn blind. And so that was um, the, those were the first evidences that indeed uh, there is a, a segregation of function in the cortex, and uh, that you can attribute different uh, parts of the cortex to different functions. For example, the visual cortex in the occipital part of your cortex. Uh, this is uh, how it started. Then uh, a very interesting uh, second step uh, uh, occurred when um, individuals, um, scientists started to record the electrical activity of uh, visual cortex. Now that they knew where it is mm -hmm. and they knew uh, um, how uh, visual information goes from the eyes to the visual cortex, they decided to look at what those visual cortex responds to, right? What, yeah. uh, what uh, visual stimuli trigger electrical activity in visual cortex. Electrical activity is the language of the brain. Mm -hmm. And they did this by inserting metal electrodes, right? Uh, those are probes that you insert into the brain of some animal in order to record like little microphones, but instead of listening to sounds, they listen to electrical activity in the brain. And then you, you, they, they, those first experiments were done in cats. And, uh, and then a battery of visual stimuli were presented. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's where the difficulty started, right? Because uh, since the cortex filters out visual information, this means, per definition, that not any visual stimulus is going to trigger activity. In the yeah, cortex. so turning the light on or off doesn't... Turning just, the light yeah. on or off clearly is not going to have yeah. uh, any effect, right? Mm -hmm. So you need to find what the right visual stimulus is. But if you don't know what that cortex is good for, what is the right visual stimulus is something that um, you cannot predict. Mm -hmm. And in fact, it was a, a chance observation that in primary visual cortex, edges, borders that are defined by a dark part and a lighter part of, of space, right, that creates an edge, were ideal stimuli to trigger activity. It was incidentally discovered because they were presented, they were, this was done, this was work done by Hubel and Wiesel in the 50s and uh, late 50s and early 60s. And they were presenting stimuli by sliding, uh, essentially slides, uh, into an ophthalmoscope, into ophthalmoscope, either to project the image directly on the retina or onto a wall in front of. Is this like uh, uh, those overhead, animal. those overhead things where you would put a, uh, it would have a light on it, and then you put a slide. No, I think they were slightly or... more sophisticated. There were oh, these slides that were put into a projector. Now I don't remember whether the projection was directing the eye or, or or onto a wall, but the point is that they had dots of various sizes, and uh, with none of the of those visual stimuli they, they were projecting uh, into the visual system of the cat, they managed to to trigger activity while they were recording with those metal electrodes on the cortex. And apparently, suddenly, there was one slide that was wrongly positioned, mm -hmm. such that the edge showed up uh, at... Uh, it was either broken or wrongly positioned, so that it created an edge, right, uh, on the projection. And that edge had the right orientation yeah. and the right contrast to trigger activity in the, in the visual That's cortex. That's great. <laughs> and uh, what's great is actually not only that, but that they realized the, the <laughs> importance of the discovery. That there was a person right? behind the bench that went, wait a second. Absolutely. And we're onto something here. Absolutely. I yeah. mean, these, uh, a lot of, a lot of, uh, discoveries are done by chance, but at the end, uh, is the person who looks at, uh, at those results who realizes yeah. 
the impact of that chance of starvation, which is fundamental, right? Would you would you mind if we just go a little bit back and sure, you could tell absolutely. us about your just sort of like personal history, like yeah. how you kind of got sure. into science? So I grew up in Rome in Italy. My parents are both um, much more prone to humanities than uh, to science. In fact, science uh, was not really a topic at home. Neither of my parents uh, went to college, despite being uh, most the most creative and intelligent people I know. But uh, my father started as a journalist and then uh, he entered into business. My mother is a painter. And so I grew up um, in a world in which... Um, in which science uh, was clearly not uh, dominant, to say the least. <laughs> it, what, you didn't talk about at dinner time? And, or... <laughs> uh, no, we talked about other things, about art, and um, yeah. but not about science. And uh, in fact, uh, I would even say that uh, uh, from um, uh, my parents' point of view, maybe sometimes science was seen with skepticism, uh, more mixed with a uh, Technology, most seeing as something secondary as compared to the high ideal of humanity. Sure, right? yeah. So, yet, uh, my, my fascination uh, for, for natural sciences and in particular for biology existed since I was, um, a kid. And clearly it was there in my early teenage years. And it was uh, clearly recognized by my father who actually decided to if not promote it, at least uh, somehow support it. So he bought me a microscope, a real microscope, oh, when well. I was a kid. <laughs> and I spent hours and hours with that microscope. And uh, eventually, despite the fact that he didn't completely understand it, he supported uh, my decision to study biochemistry and to go to Switzerland. I went to, 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 to Zurich, mm -hmm. uh, Switzerland, at the ETH, to study biochemistry when uh, I was 18. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, Although my parents really had no clue why and how and what this would be, they uh, I felt complete support from from their side. Well, that's nice. Yeah, I'm, my family's kind of similar yes, too, where they yeah. they're extremely supportive. They did they just tell me I have to just very much like yeah I'm just doing science stuff and <laughs> uh, I tell them the best I can and uh, uh, but it's it's great that they uh, recognize that and uh, so you went to Zurich then. So I went to Zurich. Uh, studied biochemistry. Studied biochemistry. How was that experience for you? Uh, that was, um, that was, um, was an interesting, um, Zurich was an interesting intellectual environment. Uh, those first year were not particularly fun in Zurich. It was not, not a city to party. That was not. It was not a party <laughs> city. It became later, but at that time it was really not. Um, but it got me a good solid uh, background in biochemistry and biology. There was relatively little neuroscience, so I discovered neuroscience uh, maybe in my later years. I got very fascinated by it. I thought that was what I would like to do, yet I had very little preparation for it. So I took a, a year off after college. Mm -hmm. I thought of doing a PhD, but um, I wanted to do a PhD in neuroscience, but I didn't really even know what, re what neuroscience is. So I visited several labs during that year throughout Europe. I went to Germany, to Switzerland, to France. And, um, and I remember very, very sharply going, being in a lab in Zurich, uh, visiting that, uh, professor. It was a uh, professor Geviller and he told me I could go and look at, speak with the people in his lab. And I remember this person, uh, sitting on a rig and recording, uh, from neurons in slices. And I record, I remember 
hearing and seeing action potential on the oscilloscope. And I was hooked. I thought, <laughs> yes. this is what I want to do. I've I heard, want to record action yeah. potentials. I've heard that so many times, yes. and it's it, it's undeniable. Yes. Like, seeing the immediate, in, like, Absolutely. looking at the oscilloscope, you're in a biological system, and then you're playing with it. Uh, it's, it, I guess I think if you're, if you have that mentality and that you're fascinated with how the world works, yeah. I feel like that system, uh, has probably generated, like, <laughs> I wonder how many neuroscientists <laughs> today, probably a huge started amount like started like Absolutely. that. Absolutely. Yeah. So, and so this is what hooked me. Obviously, as a, as an undergraduate student, the idea of thinking about uh, the brain and even just the possibility of approaching the brain from a biological and mechanistic point of view was uh, was very fascinating. The idea of uh, going uh, uh, at uh, the basis of the organ of consciousness or the basis of the organ that makes you perceive the world uh, in ways that differs depending on the drug you use, right? And that's that was uh, had an incredible draw, an incredible attraction. So independent of the neuron and the actual potential themselves, just the fact of being able to deal with that gray matter, right? As, yeah. uh, as its attraction. I think for lots of people, lots of uh, students I talk to sort of those, it, it starts to ask the fundamental questions about reality, about who we are, uh, uh, not even just humans, but even just like sort of all life in, in general. Um, so from there, you did you find a lab that sort of fit your interests? Yes, or? yes. so I, I stayed in Zurich. I stayed in yeah. Zurich. I stayed in that lab. Doing that slice, that, yeah. Uh, and um, and in fact, there was a uh, a junior um, assistant professor that had just arrived, uh, Scott Thompson, and he became from the United States and uh, moved to Zurich, and he became my direct graduate advisor. And so I had a great time there. I spent. Um, Three and a half years as a graduate student there. Uh, PhDs are quite short in Europe. Mm -hmm. And then I decided to move. Um, I was very interested with synapses. I thought that was, um, that was the way to go. There were plenty of mysteries to be discovered in how synaptic transmission work. And so I moved to San Francisco at UCSF to the lab of Roger Nicole. And there, um, and there I had a great time. I had a great, great time. I, is that a more fun city to live in, too? It was a much more fun city <laughs> to live uh, than, uh, than Zurich, which became also a problem, because in the first uh, year of my life in San Francisco, I spent uh, much more time uh, in the bars and enjoying the nightlife of San Francisco, enjoying the women, young women that I met uh, in San Francisco, than in the lab. And, um, and in fact, I remember very well Roger Nicole after one year calling me into his office and telling me very clearly, very stern tone. In fact, it was a situation that was uh, most, almost more painful for him than for me, telling me that uh, I was not working enough, I was not producing enough, that this was not the way it was working in his lab, and this, is, this was the way it should stay. For me, then I had to change lab because he didn't want me in his lab anymore. And I felt incredibly embarrassed, right? And not only for the fact of what he was, uh, he was facing me with reality, right? I hadn't done nothing up to that time. Yeah. But because I had pushed him to having to tell me this, I was embarrassed for even having had to put him into that situation, right? Of having to tell me, look, either you work or you have to go, because it was clearly very difficult even for him to tell me that. 
And so, and so, yes. Was I, that a reality check there? Or did you go, oh, crap, I got to... <laughs> that was, well, I think I, uh, that things changed. And so yeah. I did the best I could for the next two years. And in fact, things worked very well with, with him. And um, I mean, he's... Uh, an absolute mentor for me, Roger Nicol. We keep in touch uh, on very regular basis, and I learn an enormous amount uh, in his lab in terms of how to do science, uh, how to ask a question, how to get at a question, right? Uh, and uh, he's been an inspiring figure since uh, that famous day in his office in which he tell, told me, either you change or you're out of here. <laughs> and... Um, and so, nevertheless, nevertheless, after, after having been in his lab, that's when, uh, when I, when I got into a real crisis, because, uh, I faced what many young investigators have to face, which is, so now what, right? I've proved myself as a graduate student, I've proved myself as a postdoc, now it's my time to start my own, uh, research program, what am I gonna do? And um, I really had no clue of what am I going to do. I, I had no clue. I knew how to work on synapses, but there was a time in which the world of synaptic uh, physiology was entering into the hand of molecular biologists because uh, the physiological question had been answered, and now the question was what molecules, what proteins are uh, at the core of synaptic transmission, both presynaptic protein and postsynaptic protein, right? Both the work of a Sudhof, right, and the work of... Uh, uh, Roberto Malino and uh, of a Roger Nicol, right? So, and uh, maybe I was uh, more inclined to look at function of slightly larger system rather than reducing my my focus, reducing or or, or, or increasing my focus, if you want, to, to 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 proteins. So I really didn't know what to do. So so I decided to go to Paris because it's a city that I like. I wanted to have more fun. Yeah. Um, and uh, I had a friend in Paris, uh, Serge Charpac, who had just uh, started to set up his lab there. And so again, I thought, okay, let's go and have fun. And so I went for Paris with one, for one year. I had great fun, and uh, we did good science with Serge. But essentially, I had just postponed the decision of what to really do. We, had a, we did a little project together, which was clearly not a, a research program in no way. It was just... A, one project that two friends can do together in one year yeah. while uh, having fun in a great city. So I went back to Zurich, less fun city, as I was telling you before, and started my own lab. Uh, very small, very small. It's something that actually I don't regret at all today. Uh, when I think back, uh, starting your own lab with uh, uh, the means of just having uh, maybe two rigs uh, and uh, one graduate student or one postdoc, but absolutely no major academic responsibility is something that um, for me was very important. I, I had this small space. I would go there in the morning early. I would slam the door behind me, and this was my garage. Um, me and my pal, where it was a, a graduate student or a postdoc, and we would just uh, do experiment uh, and uh, and focus on that and there was uh, getting grants was not particularly difficult but uh, if you have a very small lab and anyway no no possibility of expanding your lab because that was the deal there in Zurich then you just focus on what you have it was one of those uh, uh, junior professor uh, 
position for five years. It was not a 10-year track, right? So they give you some money for five years. You can expand a little bit that amount of money with grants, but essentially it's you and one or two people at most and that small room. But that was great because it completely focused me. I had absolutely no committee work to do. I had a very, very little teaching, very little money to raise, and so I could completely focus on trying to build up a research program. And um, and despite the tiny, tiny size of my lab and the relatively small means that we had, those few years in Zurich were absolutely instrumental in uh, in my ability to create a research program that would be there would be more than one project and a paper, right? But something that uh, looks into the future. And um, do you have any like do you have any memories of like breakthroughs or sort of how did it? Um, how did you uh, how did you craft the yeah, the so, work that would come from that? I'm sure it probably started maybe like you're like what am I doing? I let's start well, for, here. For, for for a while it was really as you're saying, what am I doing? Well, I'm going to try to do what I know how to do, which was one way of earning my daily bread somehow. Yeah, yeah. But uh, there was a clear deep unsatisfaction with it. I knew that I could do experiments to get. Uh, uh, next, my next paper out because that what had been done for several years. I knew that I knew, the, I knew the craft, right? But I lacked the vision, all right? So I knew to how to inch ahead and do decent work to publish in decent journals, but I lacked the vision. And the vision is what, the vision is what inspires you and what, uh, and I lacked it probably because I hadn't spent enough time thinking about it, but eventually, Eventually, I realized that there was this uh, immense uh, gap between uh, our understanding of cellular physiology and our understanding of how even the most basic uh, small circuits of neurons work when you assemble a few neurons together, right? And there was a realization that occurred within a couple of months uh, after me arriving in Zurich. and. Uh, Realizing that uh, made me open an immense world because suddenly I had the tool to address that because I was trained as a synaptic and cellular physiologist. And yet with two simple tools that I could, uh, that, 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 that were the, 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 the tools of my craft, I could address questions that were, uh, that were immense, right? The, 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 the function of circuits, uh, uh, how they compute, uh, um, and uh, the various interaction between the various type of neurons. And so I started my work in slices there and uh, we had a few good publications and uh, uh, through those good publications we could get, uh, I could transfer my lab to UCSD after uh, three or four years in Zurich. Wow. Could you talk about some of the research that came from that period? Yes, uh, absolutely. Like what were some of the, did, would you say the, the vision started coming into focus there and what yes. that was? Yeah. Yes. So, there are, uh, in the brain, there are two main types of neurons, the so-called excitatory neurons and the inhibitory neurons. And uh, they interact in, uh, through um, various uh, pattern, connectivity pattern. An inhibitory neuron might, excite, might inhibit an, in, an excitatory neuron, an excitatory neuron might excite an inhibitory neuron, an inhibitory neuron might inhibit another inhibitory neuron. And, and so there are ma many, many different connectivity patterns and many exist in the brain. And we're discovering the rules of those connectivity. But through those connectivity patterns, um, activities that enters into those circuits is 
processed in very, very specific manners. And uh, I remember very well uh, being in Zurich, how we discovered that uh, feed-forward inhibitory circuits were absolutely important to enforce uh, the timing of responses in a pyramidal cells, so making sure that excitatory neurons in the cortex would uh, fire action potential, would uh, produce electrical activity with a very, very precise timing. And this is not something that was intrinsic to the pyramidal cell, but this was the result of the tiny circuits within which pyramidal cells were embedded in. And the circuits involve both excitatory and inhibitory neurons. Why would that need very critical windows to send the information? Well, in fact, at that time, we didn't even know what type of information. We were looking at uh, slices of brains, we were looking at the circuits, and uh, the information we were looking at was uh, essentially uh, of no ethological relevance. We were trying to uh, extract that circuits from any physiological context, right? And just uh, feeding it whatever signal and seeing what uh, came out of that. Circuit. Sure, yeah. So there's and it, there's some wiring there. There's let's, some, exactly. let's cut it out and then just see what's going right. on. Okay. Exactly. And let's see what's going on. And what was in, well, the reason why we did it, the reason why we decided to take that approach is that we know that that wiring, that piece of wiring was, uh, uh, was stereotypical throughout the entire brain. Mm -hmm. We know that that uh, organization of that circuit, that architecture, was something which was not specific to that part of the brain, which, by the way, was the hippocampus, we're, we were looking at under our microscope, right? But that existed throughout the entire brain. And so we thought, well, if we figure out the computation that that little circuit is doing, even in abstract ways, right, in the hippocampus, we might understand what it's doing throughout the brain. And um, and that was the inspiration. I guess it's to me. I'm getting the idea that suddenly you realized, oh my gosh, we can look and try to understand what computations are being made in these circuits by slicing out the little wiring diagram and then start ma manipulating both the excitation, the inhibition, and that might start telling us about how complicated behaviors are generated by this presumably incredibly complex. Uh, amount of it throughout the whole brain, but it's overwhelming at the, at the level of like the entire brain. So, um, so then you say you moved to UCSD. And, so then I moved yeah. to UCSD with this, uh, program that was already, already launched. And, uh, yeah. again, I would like to restate that, uh, um, starting at UCSD was starting with, uh, with an engine that was already at least in part turning. And so, yeah the increased responsibilities that I got by starting my lab at UCSD in terms of teaching, in terms of uh, uh, looking for NIH funds, in terms of committee work, was less of a burden because uh, the, 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 I had already started, right? And so in this sense, I think that uh, from as a personal experience, starting uh, in a very focused manner, even in a small manner, can be in certain cases very, very positive rather than... Uh, then, you know, sometimes uh, when you start a lab and immediately you, you want to hire 20 people or uh, it's... Yeah. So I, I arrived at UCSD, so to continue on that, and um, um, we, we did... Uh, we, 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 we continued on the work on, on microcircuits, but then again, um, a sort of malaise started, a sort of uh, um, soul-searching, because... Uh, 
Yes, we were looking at the basic properties of those circuits, the basic uh, uh, computations, if you want, but we were looking at them in very, very artificial systems. There were pieces of brains that were separated from the animal, put under a microscope, right, in a little perfusion chamber, kept alive for a few hours, and uh, and so the stimuli that we would feed into the circuit were far from being uh, uh, physiological. And while at the beginning I thought that this was a strength of the preparation, right? We feed in whatever we want and we look what comes out and then we figure out the transformation. Suddenly I started to, to, to realize that that uh, could be also a big weakness of our preparation. That maybe the circuits are specifically designed to process uh, very particular information that comes from uh, the sensory world and not any type of information, any type of input that uh, the experimentalists decide to feed into them. Yeah. And so... Like, are we really reproducing the kinds of information or the types of uh, inputs that are coming in? Probably not. Actually, for sure not, yeah. <laughs> I would say. So while the in vitro approach, this, uh, um, this uh, piece of brain approach is... Uh, very useful because it's experimentally accessible, right? It's probably limited in the amount of information that it can give you uh, with regard to how real physiological stimuli are processed. And so there was again a period of um, of malaise, internal malaise and big soul searching. So essentially the question is what's next? How's next? Where's next? And eventually I decided to go in vivo to look at the circuits, but not uh, in uh, brain explants, but in intact brains. I needed uh, an animal around a piece of brain in order for being able to activate that piece of brain with a sensory stimulus. Mm -hmm. I needed a sensory periphery. And uh, we decided to study the visual system because um, for two reasons. The first uh, is an experimental reason. It is because delivering visual stimuli as compared to olfactory stimuli, tactile stimuli, or auditory stimuli is very simple. You just need to reproduce a pattern on a computer monitor and put that computer monitor in front of the animal. It's as simple as that. The second reason is because um, there is a big history, a big scientific history, a big scientific effort in studying the computational properties of visual cortex, of that part of the cerebral cortex that deals with uh, information coming from the visual world. And uh, since uh, the interest of my lab was understanding the mechanism of computation, starting from a piece of cortex for which we know already some of the computation it performs was, uh, was um, a, a, natural, uh, a natural step. So we decided to study the visual system of the mouse and we came uh, at a time point uh, which was uh, somehow ideas because uh, some of the fundamental tools had been or were being developed. First there was uh, the effort from several labs, including the lab of Mike Stryker, which has shown that uh, actually the mouse visual system is a very decent system to study vision. Mice are not blind. Yeah. Mice have a very well-developed visual system. And in fact, many of the computations that are performed by the visual cortex of mouse are comparable to the computation that are performed by the visual cortex of cats 
and monkeys. So then the, the criticism was like, oh, the, the mice don't have very good visual systems. Uh, why are you using that as a way to study this? Um, and then it was found that all, at least most of, or if not all of the computations that were found in cats were also being done in mice. Absolutely. I'm not saying that they're done in an identical manner. The acuity, maybe not with the same precision, the acuity yeah. of a mouse is less. But now you have the genetic tools. Right. That's so, the mouse, so, yeah. so that's, that's, that's the, the first thing. The second thing is that uh, we've got genetic tools, right? And uh, we can transform uh, neurons uh, in the way we want. And then uh, there is a two-photon microscopy, right? Uh, at the beginning, for a person like uh, like me who came from uh, slice physiology, in which the access to your preparation is fundamental, with uh, recording electrodes, uh, we always would put our, our slices uh, of brains under the microscopes, look at all those neurons, and record from the neurons we would decide. Rec- we would choose essentially, right? The idea of going into an intact brain was scary. Suddenly was like, we don't know who we are going to record from. We, 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 we don't have a visual access to that brain. But, uh, but that changed uh, with, uh, the ability of expressing fluorescent protein in select neurons through, through transgenic mouse lines, right? And with two photon microscopy, the ability of actually seeing those neurons in an intact brain and hence target those neurons, those neurons with, uh, with our um, electrodes. Suddenly, uh, there was no longer a big difference between uh, a piece of brain uh, under the uh, microscope uh, and an intact brain uh, in, uh, in, in an intact animal, right? Yeah. The, the access, the electrical and optical access uh, uh, was almost the same. We still rely a lot, I have to say, on slices, but... Uh, because there are still things that uh, we can do much better in slices than in vivo. But now we, we, we go from one preparation to the next uh, seamlessly. How about we talk about, I, I'd like to just go back a little bit when you were in Zurich, uh, because you, the, way, the way you described it was interesting in the sense that you have, you said you walk into the lab, close the, garage, close the door, and then it's just you and the grad student or the postdoc. Uh, how did you select people to work in your lab? Or at least like, what was... I'm assuming you guys had a lot of time together then, right? Um, what was how was, was that a, dynamic like? Or, I started yeah. with a mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and I learned immediately from that mistake. So uh, what was fundamental is uh, that uh, this um, early period uh, in my lab, uh, following this brief mistake, was actually with an uh, outstanding young scientist. Uh, a scientist that... Uh, uh, shared my passion for uh, for the work, for the topic, for the technique. Uh, shared my enthusiasm. Uh, shared my long hours. Uh, uh, essentially, I tried to surround myself with people um, with whom uh, uh, my my interest overlapped the most. Right, uh, whose goals were essentially my same goals. And that was fundamental. That was absolutely fundamental. That created an outstanding lab dynamics. It created the ability of working long hours, uh, of going uh, uh, skiing and hiking together, mm-hmm. of finding the last open pub, of having uh, a last drink before maybe going back to lab. Uh, <laughs> or uh, and uh, and that was absolutely fundamental, especially in such a small lab uh, as the one that I had in Zurich, in which we were literally. Uh, one or two people and myself. Mm-hmm. And uh, so finding the right person was, was, was crucial. And uh, the right person, 
if I can define it in a single word with that person that shared my same enthusiasm and passion for for the topic. When you hit a point, let's say uh, when you hit the malaise that we talked about, do you have a, a method or a, a, what what drives you to then like I get 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 over the the roadblock? Do you um, do you pour yourself into the? Uh, do you surround yourself with with other people? Do you just do and uh, uh, interface with other people in the field? Um, I guess I'm the I, the sort of basic question I'm asking is like where do you draw the inspiration to sort of find where the next step is going to be? Right. So those are always uh, hard periods in, in in my life, but in one's life, I know many. Yeah other uh, uh, scientists who go through those period, they can last uh, several months or sometimes a couple of years, right? Yeah, it's like a writer's block for a writer. Right, it's, it's, uh, it's when he's no longer convinced of what one is doing, but one knows that one has somewhere the potential to do better and more and, uh, and stronger and uh, more profound and more impactful and... Uh, um, and yet one doesn't really know where, where to go, what question to ask. Um, and, um, and it comes uh, by talking with colleagues, by expressing this, fr- this frustration, this malaise, uh, by, um, uh, it comes through introspection, uh, uh, it comes uh, by talking with, uh, um, trying to understand the dreams of, uh, uh, the younger people, the graduate students, right? I, I always ask, um, to graduate students, even today at lunch, right? What's your dream? What would you like to see, uh, being solved within the next 10 years? Uh, what are, where are the next frontiers, right? Uh, what is a challenging question, right? Uh, so, so, you know, essentially, uh, you try to challenge, uh, the people who surround you, with your own challenges yeah. and you see how they react. I see. It's putting, putting people around you, like you said, that share your passions, but then also uh, you can knock heads together. Yes. Not to be cliche, but could you answer that question that you <laughs> proposed, which is well, sort of like where you want to yeah, I can go? Tell you, I can tell you two, two efforts that uh, uh, look into the future, but that uh, we are starting now in the lab. Um... Uh, one is uh, the basis of uh, the mechanistic basis of persistent activity in the brain. As uh, anyone knows, uh, at least in this room, <laughs> we are much more than just a simple. Everyone knows that now. <laughs> <laughs> we have very smart listeners here now. <laughs> uh, no, we, 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 are, we are much more than a simple. Uh, reflex arch in which uh, a stimulus produces a response period, right? Uh, uh, we have that too, we are that too, but we are also more. We have the ability, right, of uh, uh, integrating uh, information over time, over timescales of hundreds of milliseconds, seconds, uh, minutes, right? Uh, uh, evaluate uh, our environment and then make a decision, for example, act on that environment. Now, the element uh, with which our brain uh, is built, the neurons and the synapses, operate at millisecond time scale, not at hundreds of milliseconds, not at hundreds of seconds, not at uh, minutes time scale. And yet, we're able uh, to 
um, integrate this information to keep it alive in, in, in our mind for time scale which are much longer than the time scale of operation of the individual elements that are made of our brain. This is a fact. And uh, we have absolutely no mechanistic understanding for it. There are some computer models out there, but our mechanistic biological understanding of it is uh, very limited. And uh, the problem is yet fundamental, because as a uh, um, famous scientist Mike Shannon would say, uh, this ability, this ability not to be just a simple reflex arch, right, is what relieves us from immediacy, right? What allows us to integrate information, to keep it in mind, and to eventually act on it, right? With delays and orders of magnitude in terms of time that are very different from the order of magnitude within which each element in the brain operates. Mm. I feel like that so, even like it's a, how, how humans seem to be privileged in the sense of not always just acting on the instinct that exactly. comes about. So it, it really gets to a Absolutely. really deep question, especially Absolutely. for humans. How do we, right. how do we see things that we want, but then right. not act on that or? Exactly. Yeah. Absolutely. And so, and so this is a, this is a question that, uh, that it's out there and it's in my, been in my mind for a while. I still don't exactly know how to address, exper address it experimentally, but, uh, we might be doing the first step in that direction as our other lab. So this is uh, definitely one of the direction we're taking. And the other direction is uh, we would like to understand how that structure I was referring to before the cerebral cortex, uh, how it uh, affects uh, that entire other part of the brain, that apparently much older part of the brain, which is the subcortical brain. That part of the brain uh, which is relevant for the most vital, uh, vital aspect of an organ, like our respiration, all of our most basic reflexes mm -hmm. are uh, are uh, orchestrated by subcortical structures, right? And um, our cortex uh, uh, communicates and interacts, commun projects, uh, communicates, talks to uh, very, very strongly to the subcortical structure which means that our cortex has the ability to modulate those instinctive behaviors, those innate behavior, and maybe modulate them uh, according uh, to the prevailing conditions, uh, according to, um, to what uh, it has learned. Um, and I find this also very fascinating. Even the most basic reflexes, right? You uh, can be... Can be changed based on the prevailing condition, based on what uh, the cortex uh, is uh, seeing or sensing. Just when I try to put my contacts in my eye, immediately I have to Absolutely. suppress that immediately. Suppress that immediately. Why? Because you yeah. know you're doing something. Yeah. Uh, or, or imagine the most big, well, another fundamental reflex is coughing if you have something that enters into your airway, right? If you didn't have that, we would all be dead, right? Because we would stop expelling what uh, impedes us from breathing, right? And yet... If you are in a concert hall, right, during a violin solo, you're going to suppress that absolutely vital reflex. And it's, right? it's terrible. <laughs> and uh, and uh, what, what's, what's amazing is this, right, is that vital reflex is, uh, is something that is very strong. You know how hard it is to suppress cough, right? Very strong. It is uh, uh, mediated by very, very specific circuits that sense the irritation or whatever is... Uh, uh, is blocking your airways and want to expel it by contracting your diaphragm, right? 
And yet somehow the cortex, by analyzing the environment and the condition, realizes that even that absolutely vital reflex in that moment should be suppressed. It probably has some... The fact, the mere fact that we can do that must have some evolutionary adaptation. Maybe you don't want to cough while you're hiding behind the tree from a tiger. Right? <laughs> yes. Yeah. I, I, I generally don't like those uh, evolutionary narrative because you can find some situation for everything, but this sounds uh, yeah. sounds almost obvious. <laughs> so. And so I would look, I, I, the, the cortex with its ability to integrate uh, the whole sensory world, right? And... Uh, and creating a context can then uh, modulate one reflex with respect to the other, with, re- with respect to the other. Sorry, and I find that also very interesting. Do you, when you are not in lab, not doing science, do you have hobbies or other forms yes. of like entertainment that you like to spend yes, time doing? Yes, I I have a hobby which is very dear to me, and I spend uh, not enough time doing it, but uh, all the free time I have, which is uh, paragliding. Oh, paragliding! Yeah, really? I like to jump off hills and mountains and cliffs and fly yeah. with my paraglider. This is That sounds amazing. <laughs> yeah, San Diego is a great place to do it. There are many beautiful hills and mountains uh, where you can jump, you can take thermals, uh, go up to six, seven thousand feet and uh, and fly with the hawks and uh, and uh, and the falcons. And how so did you how did you get into that? That sounds I got into really that fun. because uh, many people do it in San Diego. Oh yeah. They, did you see them? Did you see them going around it? Yeah, like, I saw them going around uh, I around the <laughs> cliffs uh, near the beach uh, of the of the Salk Institute, for example, many years ago. And I thought, well, it would be great to be able to fly and then pack your wing in a backpack, right? Yeah. Uh, so you pack it up, yeah, just yeah. climb, get to the you, top you, of the cliff. You get to the top of the cliff, you open it, and if yeah. the conditions are good, you can fly for as long as you want. And then where do you land? Do you so you land, uh, well, you, you always have to think where you on land. On soft ground. Right? Ideally on soft ground. Uh, ideally not too far from where you park your car. Not on a person. Where you hitchhike. Uh, ideally not in a tree. Yeah. Ideally on a telephone any, pole. Have you had any uh, dicey moments or any scary? All the time. That's All why the we t- like doing that. <laughs> That's the point, I guess. That's the point. Yeah. Oh, that sounds awesome. Oh, my God. I've never done any, like, uh, what is it? Uh, I've never done a bungee jumping or jumping out of a plane, but that sounds... I think the the paragliding would be the thing I would like to try, man. Uh, oh, it's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, wow. Well, do you have to get a, a trainer first? Yeah, to just you, do, like, you do. You don't... They don't just give you one and well, push you off a... <laughs> You, you, if you don't want to kill yourself, you might get uh, some yeah. uh, some training. Yes. Yeah. You said there's like thermals. Do you hit you hit a pocket of like warm air? And right. So, just, like... so, so one of the great thing to do is uh, is uh, you always hunt for those thermals, and uh, you don't see them. Uh, you feel them when you enter, and then you try to stay in, and so you start circling in like like birds do. And, yeah. Uh, Hawks are fun- fantastic at it, so when you see a hawk circling, you better go where it is, because yeah. you know there is a good thermal right there. Oh, that's cool. <laughs> um, well, thank you so much, Shwasma, for speaking with us. Thank you very much. It was yeah, a pleasure. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brain Matters. We'd like to thank today's guests for joining us and you for listening. For more information about the science you heard today, please visit us at brainpodcast.com. See you next time on Brain Matters.